Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have my good friend Kelly J. Baker, the author of The Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. So this is recovering the second Klan today. One of the big topics that we've been noodling on at this show is the idea of normalizing extremism. How is it done? What does it look like? What, you know, what is that end product of taking the extreme and making it normal? The issue that we've run into time and time again is finding a case study or example of extremism or an extremist movement being normalized within the U.S. and within the thread of white supremacy, white power, and white nationalism. So if we go back and pick apart the history here, the Confederacy, the first clan, the third clan, so that's the Reconstruction clan and then the Civil Rights clan, the 90s militia movements, all these kind of broadly fulfilled this destiny of a lot of extremist movements. They met their end with the case or the casket, right? They're either violently put down, they are violently mitigated, or they have a stack of civil suits against them, civil and criminal suits against them. But the one extremist group that kind of falls out of that pattern, that is an oddity that we noticed, was the second iteration of the Klan. So this is the Klan that is occurring exists between 1915 and 1930. The second clan fizzles out. There is no violent put down of them. There is no violent stick action against them. They fizzle out. The grift kind of just fizzles out and they disappear. But before they fizzle out, they created an extremist movement with broad normie appeal. So not just the core of extremists or true believers, but everyday normies. They create that appeal at the local and national levels, and they eventually affect immigration policy, among other federal level issues. And most importantly, the grift was good. They generated millions in member dues. This is not a poor organization. This is not an organization that was living in the forests of Tennessee. This is a well-to-do, well-funded organization. The second clan's appeal to white people, to the in-group, and their political appeal has been documented pretty well. And we will have that these books linked when we publish the show, but we're going through Rory McVeigh's The Rise of the Ku Klux Klan, Linda Gordon's The Second Coming of the KKK, and then Nancy McLean's Behind the Mask of Chivalry, The Coming of the Second Clan. And the big issue with those books is that they leave out religion. They repeat the same errors that we as extremist researchers are prone to, that when we talk about white supremacy, we talk about the whiteness first, and then maybe the religion. So how whiteness structures politics, how it structures social engagement, whatever. And then we talk about religion, if that, which I found weird. And then I found our guest today, Kelly Baker's book, which is just so good, The Gospel According to the Klan. And I think it's the only book so far that hyper-focuses on how the second clan interacts with the religion of the time, with Protestantism, not the religion of the time, but rather broad mainstream religion. And so with all that being said, we're going to try to figure out, try to examine how the clan interacted with Protestantism, how they use that to build a broader base of the movement, et cetera. So with all that being said, please welcome my guest, Kelly J. Baker. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Of course. So something that I was fascinated by is the origin story of why 
you chose the second clan as a research topic because I was just looking at the gospel according to the clan and it's it was published in 2011 and then I think your PhD thesis was earlier than that please correct me if I'm wrong so you're studying the second clan way before MAGA comes about, way before Trump comes about. Maybe the Tea Party at that time existed, but why as a scholar, what kind of fascinated you about the second clan? Yeah, no. One of the things that I was interested in as a graduate student is I was really annoyed with narratives of American culture that were focused on America as a progressive culture, right? So narratives that somehow suggested that we had reached some kind of pinnacle of race relations or that we had reached some sort of just and equitable society in the early 2000s up to the election of Obama, right? That was like a key moment, right? That somehow things had been fixed. And I frankly was just stunned that we could have that kind of conversation, first of all, when clearly there were still problems structurally, there's still problems with race and racism, all these kinds of issues. And so part of what I was interested in was finding a case study that really showed that these narratives weren't quite right, that we could look to the history of America and see that these stories aren't inherently progressive, right? That they aren't inherently positive stories, that we're not always moving forward, that there are reactionary movements, and that those reactionary movements need to be part of our narratives, not shuttled off to the side in some sort of way. And so I came to the second clan as part of the way to do that, because they're so interested in telling a story about America too. And we can get into that later, but they were just part of my way into that because of my frustrations that I had with how a lot of, especially American religious history was being told and represented at the time, that it was about pluralism and it was about multiculturalism. And those things and those stories are important to tell, but I just felt like they were missing a large part of a more violent, hateful history that we couldn't just overlook, that we had to reckon with too. So a line that I really like in the beginning of the book that really stood out, and I have found myself reiterating it in my head a lot, which is you argue to examine the clan is to examine ourselves. And I'm curious if you can expand on that. So I took that as when we hold up the mirror of the second clan to our current modernity, to our current circumstances, the history of the second clan doesn't challenge us as much as it is a reflection. Explore that for us. Sure. I mean, and the reflection piece, I think, is the important one. So for me, it was the similarities of the second clan to political parties, their rhetoric, the way in which they handled themselves, the way in which white supremacy was so much a part of American politics, even if people didn't want to call it out or were uncomfortable, right, being very direct about it. It was the fact that a lot of the stuff that the Klan wanted and about the way that the Klan envisioned America was still part and parcel of American politics in the 20th and early 21st centuries. That stuff didn't go away just because the Klan went away. And so I like the mirror imagery, right? That it very much was like a reflection saying, 
if we're going to look at this, like, what do we see that's similar here? Because I think oftentimes with the clan, it's always about that difference, right? And that separation saying, oh, no, like, they're a different story, right? Like, they're a different part of this history, and we're over them, or we're past them. And part of what I was trying to do with the book is to say, no, we're not, right? We're not past them. We're not past this way of thinking. We're not past the kind of violence that they represent. We're definitely not past that sort of form of white Christian nationalism in any way, shape, and form. So that they were a good case study, I think, to say, let's look a little deeper into this, right? And to see those similarities and to think through the consequences of that, right? Very carefully, what it means that Maybe the story we should have been paying attention to was the Klan story because it shows something really important about the present that people want to overlook. And again, I think the time frame is important here, right? I finished my dissertation in 2008. I finished the book and it was published in around 2011. That is like the time of the Tea Party, but it was still early stages as far as discussions of white Christian nationalism go. But you could already see the kind of momentum around that kind of movement there too, that it was already in play, right? It just wasn't as dramatic or obvious as it came to be later. That's interesting. So as a historian, when you sit down, when you sit down to research the second clan, what were some of the challenges? Because yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, Every once in a while, I have this moment where I think about what was graduate school Kelly thinking when she decided that she wanted her scholarship to be defined by white supremacy and studying a hate group, right? Like what went through her mind when she decided that she wanted to handle really uncomfortable, unpleasant, really terrible topics <laughs> for years and years, right, to do this. And so, yeah, to sit down and study this group was something because it meant that I was dealing with some really nasty parts of American history almost constantly, but it meant that I also had to find a way to study the Klan that opened a door to their interpretations of the world in a way that wasn't judgment-free, right? So that I had to find a way to have the Klan represented and what they were saying represented, but not in a way that was propaganda where they got to run free in the manuscript, but also had a critical edge that could draw it back so that they didn't, what the, they were saying didn't get to just stand alone, but had to have critique as a part of it, had to have analysis, these sorts of things. And that that's, that's difficult work to figure out how much of what they're saying, especially the particularly hateful things they're saying are going to be a part of that work and to figure out how you're going to mitigate damage and harm in what you represent and how you represent them and what you include. So that's tough. The other part that's tough about them is that they're supposedly a secret society. <laughs> so finding the stuff that they had is also a little bit difficult. Now, one of the things that I lucked onto is that for a secret society, they were really bad at it. They had newspapers, they had pamphlets, they had books and these sorts of things. So as a historian, I was able to comb through those primary sources 
and use those to build a book that had their kind of own voices and their public presence to through that, to build a narrative, to build a story, to see what they were saying about things in some kind of way. But yeah, no, it was, it was a hard thing to piece together and to really think through the ethics of what it meant to work on these kinds of groups and to think through the scholar's role in that and what my responsibility was to my audience and what to expose an audience to, but also to think through what my responsibility was to historical subjects, even if I didn't like them. So it was a tough thing to untangle at times and to figure out like how I wanted to write it and what the best way to approach it was. So I spent a lot of time thinking about things like empathy, right? And whether we should even have any empathy for white supremacist movements, right? And how you can present their worldviews, right? In a way that doesn't like let them get away with things without being really critical about the damage that they do and the violence that they enact rhetorically, physically, these sorts of things. So yeah, it's it was super complicated. And I don't know that I was prepared for how complicated it was going to be when I first embarked on that project. Something that I find interesting that you pointed out was this idea that they're supposedly a secret organization. And they're, <laughs> right. they're these... They, present themselves as like sneaky boys but right. and, then, and like when you start digging into it it's no it's not real secrecy it's not real protection of secrets it's the aesthetic of secrecy it's yeah the, the yeah. aesthetic of mystery and I'm interested in like as a historian when you start approaching these primary documents how did you separate out like the fact that the second clan was always on this hype train I think yeah the, they, if I remember the Gordon reading correctly, they actually hired a media company or... Oh, no, they did. Yeah. Whatever like the public relations yeah. professionals to help them, right? Yeah. You, Sorry. For you, like, how do you, when you're sitting down and reading like the Imperial Nighthawk or the Courier right. with a K, how do you say, like, how do you establish the truth that they put out in those documents versus their actions and their kind of how they, their own, the clan's agency in the world? Like, how do you compare and contrast or what was that approach? Yeah, so I was very interested in the contradictions, right? That appear between how they act and what they were talking about. And so I spent a lot of time on those contradictions, right? This is what they would say, but this is what they do, right? This is what they want the order to be. This is how their members are acting. And that kind of helped me, I think, keep it more honest because I sure wasn't going to take them at their word <laughs> about how they understood themselves because they thought very highly of themselves and of their mission and this sort of thing. But I also didn't want to do what some other clan historians had done, which was completely dismiss their newspapers, the Nighthawk, the Courier, as propaganda and then not use them as sources at all. Because I felt like they gave us kind of a rich entry into what clan members and clan leaders were thinking. So it was just a way in which I had to always balance that their actions and their words sometimes matched up. And that gave some authenticity. 
and then sometimes didn't. And those contradictions told me something too about the push and pull of leadership versus members, for example, right? And having competing goals there about how the leadership really wanted to have the order represented in this ideal way as like knights and that they were out there doing good in the world always and that but members won't behave the way that they're supposed to behave. So my favorite moments in the archives is when I found like these admonishments in the newspapers where leaders are just like, can't you get it together for a minute? Membership, can you just cut it out? Like that kind of like frustration that you could feel because they had this idea that the order was like these saving knights and that they were above reproach when really they weren't. They were doing stuff that was terrible and they're threatening people and they're burning crosses on lawns and they're trying to get increasingly awful immigration legislation passed. And yeah, like you said, like there's this hype machine that's very much in play that I always had to pay attention to alongside of the real world consequences of their actions and say like, where do these match up and where do they not? And what can we learn from those connections and those disconnections in a certain way? Was it like, it, it strikes me their cultural production and their written production is so cutting edge. Was that? Yeah, no, they were like, this is one of the things that I try to explain to folks is that like, the clan in the 20s was like savvy, right? They like understood branding in a way before we like had the language of branding, right? Like they knew that their brand had this particular appeal, right? Like they had pretty much an advertising campaign of what they wanted the order to be, right? They were hip to how they represented themselves and they very much understood the power of the press to mold opinion and understandings about themselves too. They understood the importance of spectacle and theater to represent themselves. These were folks that like got it in a way that can't be undersold or underplayed. And this is folks that were involved in the 1920s clan were educated middle-class folks too, often who had advanced degrees, which I think helped with the kind of PR machine and the way that they built this brand and did all these things. But yeah, that there was a skill that they had that is scarily impressive, right? That I was always surprised by sometimes in the archive and then eventually got used to this is just how they operated. But when I first encountered it, I was like, whoa, like they were onto something and figured this out in a way that they, for a little while anyway, really made it work for them. So in terms of the Nighthawk and the Courier, these, were they in, intended for more internal? Or for some reason, I'm just picturing like a beginning of the 20th century newsboy handing out <laughs> Nighthawk. Yeah, <laughs> so, so supposedly they're internal, right? They're supposed to go to Clanson or maybe a Klansman would pass it on to his wife who was a Klanswoman. But they're, they were supposed to be internal documents. But they're such performance in them like they don't have newsboys like shouting out on street corners 
but it's so clear that they were meant to be passed on, like to people that are outside of the clan to spread the clan's message in the same way that clan pamphlets were supposed to work too. That it's, that they were very much documents that had a life beyond the clan, even though the claim was that this is just kind of information that we're passing on, right, to you members. So yeah, I they did carry on beyond the in-group, not in a direct like mass marketing campaign in some kind of way, but just in that way that you pass on a magazine that you've read to someone else and they pass it on to someone else and that sort of thing. A much more organic kind of personal approach, I think, was what was happening there. Interesting. So something that I was taken back by in reading your book was how much the second clan took its aesthetic and its theatrical presentation, not from the first clan, but from Birth of a Nation. Um, Yeah, wild, right? Yeah. Uh So I'm curious, can you explore that for us? Like why? Sure. Why that decision of taking from Birth of a Nation rather than the first clan? Yes. One of the founders of the second clan, Colonel Simmons, watched Birth of a Nation and was so inspired by the way that Klansmen were portrayed in Birth of a Nation, right? So this film, cinematic, Klansmen are riding horses, they're wearing uniforms, they seem protagonist they seem like nightly they are larger than life right because you're seeing him on screen and so he pretty much just cribbed from the movie these ideas but then added to it for the second clan with the reconstruction clan one of the things to keep in mind is that the uniforms were hodgepodge right so that a lot of the early uniforms were like pillowcases for hoods and wives nightgowns for robes early on and later like there was sewing involved in actual robes and like occult symbols on them and this sort of thing but decidedly more like low-tech right homespun this sort of thing and so Simmons wanted something that was more official more dramatic more theatrical And so the movie just worked for him in this way, right? Like it just gave him this idea, right? That the uniform could be so much more, right? And the visuals of the clan could be so much more and so much, so much bigger and larger than life, right? And so he just took stuff that he saw in the film and then repurposed it for the order. And this is where you get, what has now become the kind of iconic clan uniform with the hood and robe, right? White hood and robes with the patch on the chest. And that just is the kind of look that we understand kind of meshes with the clan until this day. But yeah, it was very much pop culture based <laughs> instead of historical and that he didn't even hesitate about this, which is, I think, also interesting and is also fascinating to me as someone that does pop culture scholarship about how pop culture can so quickly influence real life, right, in this kind of way. Just to emphasize the point, like when we were sitting down to draw up the questions for this portion of the show, like 
the first clan, like their uniforms are spooky. They're scary. And I think they were built around the idea of terrorizing freedmen during Reconstruction. Right. And then you compare that to the second clan, which is this very clean and neat and orderly presentation. So I'm curious, how can we link that aesthetic and that visual design to the end political goals of the second clan? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And so part of that attempt by Simmons was to get away from those ghostly images, right? To get away from that legacy of terror from the Reconstruction clan, that he wanted a more respectable, orderly clan than that predecessor, right? That he could look back to them and like hearken to that history, but he really wanted to create something that was in his mind more innocuous, right? And wasn't as frightening as that previous order. And I think that's part of the attempt to be more political right, to have more political impact. I think part of it too was the way in which he understood the importance of Christianity as part of this and a respectable Christianity as a piece of the clan in the 20s. And so he really wanted and did with this uniform to have some kind of visual distance and have that physical separation from that previous order, right? So that you would look at this and say, oh, that looks different. And he wanted that difference and to set up his order as different, more modern, more respectable as quote unquote, somehow safer, right? than the previous order and just to make sure that the night piece was the part that was coming through, right? The knights of the Ku Klux Klan that are there to save people, right? That are not there to terrify people, that they have a different purpose in the 20s than they did in this previous time period. And that he knew that you could do that with the symbols that you use, right? With the material culture that you use. And so was pretty clever and savvy in how he set this up. And they could charge $10 a uniform. <laughs> yes. No, this is the part two, right? And you require, you have membership fees and then you require a uniform that looks a certain way and it's regulation. And yeah, and you can only get it from one place. and people aren't making homemade ones anymore, right? Like they're created in a different way for, again, that look that is uniform and standardized, right? It blew my mind, like how inseparable the need to make money, the grift was from <laughs> yeah. the clan. Like I had always read about characterizations of the second clan as a multi, like a multi-level marketing scheme, but- uh -huh. Getting into the uniform and the charges and the money for just the uniform. And I think you, you highlight a saber and like a bunch of regalia. Yeah. And it's just, huh. they can't separate out the grift from the aesthetic and the aesthetic from the grift. Or the symbolism, right? The symbol so each yeah. of those objects, right, is going to have a particular symbolism that is going to somehow 
imbue it with this like larger, more important quality. And the symbolism then is what you're paying for, right? You can't see my scare quotes here, but that they're there. <laughs> they're implied in what I'm saying, right? That's also part of the larger strategy here. And it's hard to peel apart, right? Like you said, it's hard to peel apart the money-making piece from the larger like symbolism, like belief in all this stuff. It's it's hard to tease those apart in some kind of way about who are the true believers in the system and whether they're being duped by a PR machine or this kind of thing and like how those are attached to each other. It's just, it gets complicated fast about that. I like that idea of true believers because that segues nicely into our section about politics, but how would you, when you're examining top level, the second clan, how would you determine who are the true believers and then who's there for the grift, the money, and yeah. then who's there for a societal benefit? Because I think my, my favorite political story with the second clan is Harry Truman, right? He's running for, I think for Senate in Missouri. And then the second clan comes to him and says, you have to give us 10 bucks to be a member of the clan or we'll campaign against you. And if I'm understanding the story correctly, like Harry Truman is just, he's a salty dude. He's like, no, fuck off. I'm not going to pay you 10 bucks. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So that kind of made me like start thinking on this line of who are the true believers? Who's there for the grift? And who's there because it, it just gave them a kind of benefit to their business or their political career? Yeah, I don't know that I was ever able to entirely parse this out, right, is what I'll say, because I think it's a hard thing to do. I definitely do think there are folks in leadership who were there for the money making, who were there for the power of being in charge of an organization like this, right, and who enjoyed the benefits of that power and that leadership. Now they might have still believed in clan principles, right? But the power piece was the important piece to them, right? Fundamentally, there were folks that joined the clan just as a social club, right? Like they would have joined the Masons because they wanted to go to the picnics or the parades or because their buddies had joined this sort of thing, right? We clearly know that folks did this. And, and then they're the folks that joined because they believed in the Klan's vision of America as a white Protestant nation, and that they believed that America was under threat from Catholics, from Jewish people, from other immigrants, that they were concerned about the enfranchisement of Black people and what that would mean for the larger U.S. culture. So it's also the case that there are people that at different junctures could have been part of all three, depending on where they were. So it's always hard to tell, but there are also like clan ministers who went and preached at churches about the clan and its religious identity. There were clan lecturers who seemed very invested in the clan's messaging and this sort of thing. Were they true believers in it? 
Maybe it seemed like it. But this is one of those things where I sometimes wish that historians could be mind readers. I don't really wish to be a mind reader. That seems like it would be awful. But it would be really helpful <laughs> to discern like how many folks are involved in this movement just because they want to go to a picnic and how many people are involved because they understood America to be under attack and that the Klan was the only way they could save America. That would be useful to know, but it's just hard to piece that out, especially when what I'm working from mostly are official newspapers and that sort of thing in my book that are primarily written by leaders who have conflicting goals, which is probably the kindest way to frame it. So given that, when it comes to the second clan and its politics, like its, its constituencies, this complex milieu, as you laid out for us, would you consider the second clan to be reactionary? Or if not, like, how does it, why not, basically? Yeah, no, I think that the second clan is a reactionary movement. I think you could understand it to fit in with other reactionary movements in the U.S. to America becoming more diverse and more different, and that it does fit in with that larger history of movements that are anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, now anti-Muslim, right, anti-LGBTQ, anti-Black, right, like that you can fit them into this larger history, right, that once people start to get rights or start to become part of a larger cultural scene, you see these movements arrive, right? Because they become really concerned with what's going to happen to white people, right? And so the Klan fits into that narrative and fits into that history. So I do see them reacting, right, to these sorts of things. And that's part of what they're doing is that they're deeply concerned, right, that something is going wrong with America, and thus they have to act right? Because America, fundamentally, they think is a white Protestant nation that belongs to them and shouldn't belong to other people. And that's part of where you get the kind of night imagery, right? They have to defend the nation. They have to do these kinds of things. And so, yeah, that's where I would place them and not hesitate too much about that either. So then, um, how would we define the in-group versus the out-group here? Now, I think for an outsider, it's pretty easy to say a white supremacist organization is, right. is the in-group is white people and the out-group is Blacks, Black people, Asians, whatever. But I, I was taken back because in the 20s, you have this kind of complex debate about immigration and right. about, and it's not the immigration that we understand in 2022, but rather immigration from Eastern Europe and Europe. I want you to explore for us, how did the second clan define whiteness? How did they, how did they kind of fashion that in group? Sure. So they had a complicated metric when it comes to whiteness is what I will say, which is you were white if you came from particular countries of origin. So that when they got concerned with immigration in the 20s, what we would consider today to be white people, right? Folks that 
would now fall under the metric of white. So white Catholics, for instance, from like Italy would not have been considered white by Klansmen. And part of this is because they came from Italy. So a country of origin that the Klan was not sure about. The second part of that though, was their Catholicism. So the Klan in the twenties, it wasn't just about what country you immigrated from. It was also about your religious affiliation. So your whiteness was based on where you originally immigrated from, but it was also based on were you Protestant, were you Catholic, were you Jewish, that sort of thing too. And I have one chapter where I map this out, where it gets really complicated really fast, right? Where they're like, these countries are okay. These are not, right? England, no problem. Ireland, probably a little problematic, right? And so these kinds of interesting calculus that they do, right? And these like weird hoops that they jump through to justify who counts as white and who doesn't count as white. And if you had been in America for a really long time and you happen to be Protestant, then you counted as white and they didn't pay attention to your origins quite as much either. So they were slippery about it in a certain way so that they wanted to count white Protestants who were already in the U.S. as white. They wanted to count white Protestants who immigrated from certain countries as white, but other folks who would be understood as white today because of their religious affiliations were just knocked out of that category entirely. And so it was a strange kind of thing that they did, right? That like religion mattered to whiteness for them. And that might seem strange, right? To listen to that now as a way that this played out, but it very much was the crux of the issue for a lot of how they understood who mattered in the American nation and who the American nation was for. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does bring up the imagery of, for some reason, like just dudes working spreadsheets and be like, ah, yeah. Irish. Half yeah, no, it's so weird. And I spent a lot of time on this chapter that I wrote about this, just being like, this person counts, but this person doesn't count. Reading through these long articles that they had, like in the Nighthawk and the Courier, where they like lay this out again and again and feeling like I needed like a spreadsheet or like a Venn diagram, maybe where you like just loop together. The, and I hate Venn diagrams, but loop together the circles to finally figure out like who fit in the center because it just felt like it became increasingly more complicated the more I like dug into how they categorized whiteness. And you mentioned that they were slippery on whiteness, but they were more steadfast on the idea of religion. So they were like right. more accepting of you being white versus you being a Catholic. Is that correct? So what I mean when I say that they were slippery on whiteness, it was more that for Americans, so folks who had already been an American soil, who maybe couldn't count their lineage back to England or something like this, but also happened to be Protestant, those folks could count as white, right? So they weren't as firm about them as they were about immigrants. So that whiteness category had some fluidity to it, depending on your immigration status, right? And where you had landed, but they were 
firm about this religious category, right? So in a sense, what you were saying is right, is that they were not accepting white Catholics into the Klan in the 20s. It didn't matter if you had been in America (laughs) and your family had a long history of being in America. That wouldn't matter to them. What mattered was your Catholicness, right? And so you couldn't be counted within their ranks because your Catholic identity knocked you out of what they considered to be who was an acceptable American, right? An acceptable white American also in that. I want you to explore that because what if you had black Protestants? Would they, how would they approach that? This is the question, right? So black Protestants, of course, like you would think, okay, they're Protestant, right? So maybe they would get a pass here. But of course, then in this instance, it's their blackness that becomes a problem for the Klan, right? Though the Klan did do this kind of wild, weird benevolence to black Protestants sometimes in the 20s where they would donate Bibles to black Protestant churches or drop off money, do these like weird benevolent acts every once in a while. And it was very strange because they appreciated the Protestantness of it, but they were never gonna allow black Protestant members because they were concerned again about black people gaining more rights in America and what that would mean and particularly what it would mean for white people in some sort of way. So yeah, so again, it's that like strange calculus that they would do, right? Where it's like the Protestant part of this person is fine, but not (laughs) this other identity of this person. And so that they bounced around with this again and again. And that category was just pretty narrow about who they thought, excuse me, the nation belonged to, very limited to white Protestants. And that white Protestant category also sometimes could be pretty limited as well when they were talking about which immigrants they would accept into their ranks too. So then how does that get reflected, that construction of in-group and out-group for the second clan, how does that get reflected into political expression? Because I think like in my sort of cursory look, I'm, we're going to dig deeper into this. They were able to pass or influence the 1924 Immigration Act, a very stern right. limitation of people coming in from Europe. But we couldn't find, at least on that first research pass through, of the Second Clan's influence on like Jim Crow statues or right. more race based, anti civil rights and Jim Crow stuff. So then when it came to policy and when it came to politics, How did the Klan take that in-group construction and express itself? What for them was more important? So one of the things to note about the 1920s Klan is that they were deeply concerned about immigration. And so they were most concerned about immigration more so than they were concerned about the enfranchisement of Black people. So later, so earlier Klan Reconstruction was deeply concerned with what would happen if 
Black people gained rights, so much so that they're terrorizing freedmen, terrorizing anyone from the North who came down to the South to help with this work. The 1950s and 60s Klan, also deeply concerned with Black people, wants to make sure that Jim Crow stays in place very much. The 1920s Klan is odd in that the immigration piece against Catholics and Jews is mostly what it's hung up on. This doesn't mean that it's not anti-Black, because it very much is, but its political sway often was just targeting things that involved Catholics and Jews and immigration instead. So for instance, in places where there were a lot of Catholics, the Klan would go after parochial schools, so Catholic schools, right, and target them and try to get Catholic students put forcibly put into public schools, try to make Catholic schools illegal, right, so that Catholic students would have to attend public schools and couldn't have this separate sort of thing. So that their politics were much more concerned with that kind of thing instead Instead of buffeting Jim Crow in this period, which makes them kind of an outlier to the other iterations of the Klan. Yeah, I'm just like really trying to wrap my head around it because something that kind of blew my mind was in Denver, they played a big outsized political role. And throughout the kind of narrative, this Phil, he's the local historian who wrote the book. It was just fascinating to me because they, the only time that they really went after Black people in a violent kind of first clan sort of way was a property rights dispute here in the Five Points, which kind of blew my mind because everything else was about public schools, control of the fire department so we can burn crosses on the hills. But Taking a step back and looking at the big picture, we could say that as a, would it be accurate to say that the second clan as a political organization was concerned with the local and federal level? They weren't just, they weren't just a states-based organization, rather they had local to federal aspirations. Oh no, they definitely did. Yeah, they wanted influence at both and, and they had mixed success in different places, but they wanted to have federal influence, right? And they wanted to have local influence. For instance, in Oregon, they worked really hard against Catholic schools because they thought public schools is where you made American citizens. So if you could get Catholic students into public schools, you could make them into proper American citizens and maybe get them away from Catholicism. In Indiana, there was the Klan legislature at the state level where a whole bunch of Klansmen were elected. Now the Klan's legislator didn't prove to be super effective (laughs) in getting things passed, but they had success at least getting elected in a certain way. And then, as you mentioned, they were, they did throw support behind the 1924 Immigration Act and that did pass, right? That was remarkably restrictive on immigration. So they did have these aspirations to impact local, state, and federal governments and wanted, right, their vision of what the nation should be to be represented there. But they also wanted 
that power to determine these sorts of things. And public schools was off, were often where they like tried to fight these battles out because they were committed to a certain type of schooling and a certain type of vision of what schooling did. Yeah. That, that's really blowing my mind because you're to have that level of reach in terms of influence, right? In terms of media production, it's just mind blowing because I, I my mind kind of drifts to comparing the second clan to the first and the third. And it's just the level of complexity that you're describing is huge. And, right. they, were do, and they were doing all this with member dues. Is that right? Yeah, no, they're doing it with member dues and right. And with just activism in their local communities and having influence over people in power who are either members or were sympathetic to the Klan and the Klan's aims. And that that would go a long way to making things work for them. Given the size of the second Klan and its interpretation of the Protestant faith, how did mainstream Protestants react? How was it were they just glaring at the clan? What was that sort of <laughs> yeah. the reaction and the interaction between the two? One of the things I will say is that there initially there was some sort of askance looks at the clan and not entirely sure what to do with them to begin with. Because the clan was very pro-Protestantism, very much a, you need to go to church, right? You need to be involved in your church communities. And what I will say is that Klan members were involved in mainstream churches. So it's hard to say that like mainstream Protestantism as a whole looked down on them. There were denominations that issued statements against the Klan and being involved with the Klan. At the same time that there were ministers that allowed clan members to show up to Sunday services, donate money, right, preached pro-clan sermons, these sorts of things. So it was, it's hard to say that like overall there was at least at first a like big negative response to the clan. Later, it's more vocal is against the Klan that happens, more concern about it. The Christian century issues a number of articles against them and cautions against them. Like I said, certain denominations speak out against them, this sort of thing. But for a little while there, <laughs> there are churches that are participating with the Klan and ministers that are participating with the Klan too. So it's not quite so cut and dried as in quick rejection, but especially with denominations that churches run a little bit more independently, even if a denomination denounced the Klan, churches could still be involved, right? Because they have the autonomy to do that on their own. So you see that, that there were churches and ministers that stayed involved with the Klan and that was a thing that happened, but you Eventually the critiques come and the nervousness comes and, but at first there took a little while for some of that to happen. And I think that's notable ending that it wasn't like an immediate, oh no, this shouldn't be happening, but it was a slower response. So when they come to that rejection, what was that rejection based around? Why, why would mainstream Protestantism reject the clan what was what were the arguments there yeah so there were concerns over the clan's violence right 
violent acts. There was concern over whether the Klan was actually living up to Christian ideals or not. Now, as a religious historian, I'm always on the fence about when folks start talking about whether it was real Protestantism or not, but that's where some of the kind of criticisms were leveled, right? That the Klan was not real Protestantism, that they were doing something different and that that was a problem. But a lot of the like swift rejections came after there were scandals with the Klan, excuse me, and that there were concerns about the Klan's actions and what they stood for, about whether they were actually hypocritical and didn't live up to the ideals that they claimed for their order, that sort of thing. And then those kinds of rejections came more swiftly when folks started to point out that there were those contradictions and inconsistencies and that maybe the order wasn't quite what it presented itself to be. So the substance of these rejections, of the rejection, was more based on politics and politics than religion? Or how does that religious counter-argument come about? Or was there ever a kind of religious counter-argument? Oh, no, there's definitely a religious counter-argument. <laughs> Excuse me. So it's very much in these folks are not living up to the ideals of Jesus, right? Like they are very much not following along with what Protestantism suggests is the life that folks should be leading. They're not following the tenets of denominations. They're doing this for their own gain. There are claims that they were twisting Protestantism to their own aims, for example, this kind of thing. So yeah, so there were substantive critiques of how they were practicing Protestantism, definitely, as a part of this too. But yeah, and or to say that too, that they were never really Protestant to begin with, that they were just faking in some kind of way. And one of the things that I would suggest here that's important to note is that when there's a critique like that, that they were never really Protestant anyway, sometimes it was an attempt by these denominations, pastors, ministers, other mainstream more mainstream Protestants, to distance themselves from the Klan and to try to claim that the Klan was never religious anyway, but they were. (laughs) Like, I see what the attempt was here, but the Klan was Protestant, they were religious, but a lot of that critique was trying to, to create some distance and to try to say we're very different from them, please don't lump us in with them in any way, shape, or form, and trying to do that separation. So I just want to note that there too, that some of this rejection was just to be like, we're not like the Klan, please don't put us in the same category and that that should be noted too. So then looking at the other side of it, how did, what was the Klan's relationship with the Protestant faith? Like, did it seek to change it? Did it seek to impose their ideas? Was it a friendly relationship or was it more like subversive, getting into the churches and then slowly but surely inserting their rhetoric into sermons or or whatever? It's a really good question. So what I will say is that it can be all of those. (laughs) It doesn't have to be just one of them. A lot of their interpretation, clan interpretations of Protestantism are fairly standard mainline interpretations of Protestantism. When I was in looking at the Imperial Nighthawk and the Courier, a lot of what they're writing about and talking about 
was pretty standard fare for evangelical churches or mainline Protestant churches. It was not out of the realm of possibility, right? So their theology was not different from a lot of the more mainstream Protestant theologies, pretty friendly towards it, that sort of thing. What I will say is that they do work to tweak some of those theologies to fit better with the clan's aims, that they do work to try to fit Jesus in a way that is supportive of the clan, to suggest that Jesus would have been on the clan side of things rather than not on the side of the clan. So that they are changing that theology to better fit with their own aims. So that's happening too. It's definitely a part of what they're doing. And when there are clan ministers preaching or there are clan lectures going around, they are presenting their take on the gospel. They're not, while also presenting more traditional forms too. So that they very much are changing stuff to fit their needs. They're being selective. They're doing this. What I will say is that's not outside of the realm of what other movements do <laughs> with religious beliefs, ideas, practices, right? Is that they are selective, that they play around with the stuff, that they do stuff that supports their ideas and their sorts of things. So the clan is doing that too, right? That doesn't make them unusual. It's actually a pretty human response to this. So they were doing that. So I don't know that it's inherently subversive as much as it is what a lot of movements do to create something, a theology that's more supportive of what they're doing. Unfortunately, with the clan, what this means is that they were building a theology that supported their hatefulness, right? And supported oppression and violence and these sorts of things too. And that is where the larger problem lies, right? And so that might be the subversive piece is that they're, we're going into places and then preaching and taking these ideas and turning them into ideas that avidly worked against that. Not that the history of Protestantism doesn't have these kind of ideas embedded in it and there's histories, but they, they're just making them explicit in how they're using them, right? And using them as a weapon and as a tool to get what they wanted. Can you explain or walk us through some of the tweaks? If they're not, if I'm understanding it correctly, if they're not wholesale rewriting theology or rewriting the gospel or whatever, what are some of the specific tweaks they were making? Like you mentioned the imagery of Jesus Christ. What were those sort of tweaks they were making there? Yeah. So for so Jesus as the savior remained the same, right? So Jesus redemptive sacrifice, right? Jesus dies to save the world, right? So we all can be redeemed. That is a pretty standard line in Protestant theology. That remains the same. What happens, however, is that Jesus also becomes this figure to clansmen 
of the sort of ideal man who would martyr himself for the cause if he needed to. He also would have been supportive of the Klan and their white supremacy. They claim because he was supportive of his clan, small c, meaning Judaism, which is fascinating. So they do this like really interesting thing where they're like, Jesus was a Jew. He was supportive of his clan, Judaism. He started Christianity, but because he was supportive of this, he would also be supportive of the way we approach whiteness. Wild, right? Like that they could do this in one fell swoop in this kind of way and not like actually deal with the Jesus was Jewish part of that in any depth, but just use it to their own ends. They take the cross and say that it's a symbol of God's love, right? And that, again, fine, seems fairly innocuous, but then they burn it on people's lawns, right? Which is definitely using it as a tool of violence, right? So they make these kinds of shifts with it to support their own aims and hold (laughs) these ideas in tandem in a way that kind of hurts your head sometimes to think about it, the way that they reconcile these contradictory ideas and don't they don't maybe even reconcile them right but they hold these contradictory ideals and just move forward but they didn't have any problem doing that like that they could do this selectively if it helped their aims in the long term if it worked out for them in some kind of way So then you mentioned that the clan had preachers and lecturers can you maybe describe like the content of what the preachers were saying? Were they like officially established Protestant preachers in a community? Were they coming from outside the community? What was that dynamic? Often they would have been, no, I can't say, I can't give like a specific example of where someone would come from, but generally these were going to be people that had some sort of credentials, right? So they were already pastors in some sort of right already. Since they were traveling around, they might or might not have had a church home that they were going back to, but tended to be on a lecture circuit so that they were going around and that they would preach the gospel, but also were working to recruit people for the clan. So that they might do a sermon, but they were also there to drum up support for the clan and gain some members in some kind of way. They often had no problem talking about Jesus and the clan's Jesus and what the clan's Jesus would look like in some sort of way. Super masculine, by the way, really focused on him being a carpenter and being tough and being a knight if he could have been a knight and that kind of thing. But yeah, so... They weren't necessarily going to be based in a particular church as much as they were itinerant as part of a strategy to gain members and to gain attention and as part of the sort of PR piece too. So then would it be correct to describe their position as evangelical? As oh, in... yeah, no, totally. Yes, okay. yeah, no, yeah. No, this is very much an evangelizing for the clan, right? Both the clan ministers and clan lecturers, right? Their job is to be out front and to make the clan look good and to evangelize, to say, please come join. Totally on, on par for that. 
so then how separate was the grift from the religious understanding? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. I don't know. I don't know. I think going back to the kind of earlier piece on this, I think that's sometimes really hard to parse out. And I think that there's probably a real difference between clan leadership, right? And clan members, the people who are in charge, who might be making money off of this, right? And are making money off of this versus the people that are joining up because they like what they've heard or they find the appeal in this and they find this is useful. So yeah, are leaders using religion as a way to con people into this? I think that's, do they also believe in it somewhat too? I think that's also possible. Does that mean that they still won't use it to make a buck? <laughs> Again, still, I think a possibility. That's probably not the answer you're looking for. I just think it's hard again to say that like what they're doing is so clearly them using religion for the grift. I just, I'm not entirely comfortable saying that's what's going on. I think that there's a lot that could be happening there, but I think we know that people do that and find it a way to make money and do that. So I wouldn't be surprised and I don't think we should be surprised. And I think there are other scholars that are working and doing really good work on that kind of thing. But yeah, I don't want to discount either that there are folks that might be making money off of it, but still also believe in it. No, for sure. Like it just, yeah. like every, like as a researcher, like a new researcher, like approaching this, it, I couldn't found myself like every layer of looking at the clan at the second clan was like, <laughs> how are they monetizing this? You know, how, yeah. are they, how are they getting that money? Yeah, no, but it's so real, right? When you think about the fact that they had millions of members in the twenties, like it's a lot of money, right? That they have access to and not everyone is on the same position here, right? Not everyone believes in the mission, if we can understand it that way. And not everyone is in it just for the money, but some of the folks definitely are, right? And the recruitment for money and that as a part of that. So yeah, I think that piece definitely is crucial here too. So something that I find interesting in your book, is this dichotomy of the soul versus the savior. And I took it as the imagery of the soul implies that the clan is really a cultural and religious product of the United States, that it's an expression, its core ideas. Whereas the savior image, I wasn't too sure of this, but kind of implies that they were outside of US traditions, that they were coming from outside and kind of converting, so to speak. But can you expand and explore that for us, this idea of the clan as either the soul or the savior of the of American culture? Yeah. So the soul piece, I think you're exactly right. So the idea is that they definitely are like a product of American culture, right? And for them, they saw themselves as like the centerpiece of American culture, right? So that white Protestant Americans were what America was about, right? 
Like they were the centerpiece of America. They were what the American story was about, right? Like you could narrate American history through them. You could talk about them. Like when we talk about the inheritors of the nation, this is who you're talking about, right? The soul of the nation is white Protestants. So it's very much that idea that motivated them, right? That these are the people who are the inheritors of America's greatness and are the reason America's great in all of these things, right? The savior piece is interesting because it comes down to their idea again of themselves as knights and defenders. So they might be the soul of the nation, but they're also the folks that have to defend the nation from all these threats that they see. And this goes back to that discussion that we had earlier about them being a reactionary movement, right? Because the 1920s Klan, when it looked at the landscape, the cultural landscape, all they saw were enemies, right? Like that there were immigrants, that there were Catholics, that there were Jewish people, that now they were dealing with Black people in a different way than they had to deal with them previously, that these are all folks that want rights, that they're eventually going to be able to vote, that there are all these deep concerns that they had about what it would mean culturally, politically, socially, if these people gain any power, right? And so they understood themselves to be defenders of the nation too, that they were gonna have to be the ones that had to save the nation from all of these enemies. So that they were both the soul of the nation, the foundation, the rock, but they also had to do this thing where they were the defenders because they had to defend that white Protestant core of the nation in some sort of way. And so they wanted to be both. <laughs> right? Like not one or the other that they understood themselves as both in some sort of way, which is complicated, right? Like that you're essential, but also on the defense and trying to create both of those in a certain way at the same time that the landscape is changing radically. And the question of the soul of America is like an open question, right? Is it actually the same when there are all these different people now, right? And the character of the nation is changing and what are you going to do about it? So that they found themselves edging more and more to that kind of defensive position where they are like, we have to do something about this, right? We have to react. We have to make a difference in some kind of way. And so they wanted to be both, <laughs> but I think more and more they were finding themselves in a position where they were on the defensive and had to code themselves in that savior role if they wanted their nation to stay the same. And again, it was like, could they do that or was it already too late? And I think part of what I argue in the book is that by the time they started acting, it was already too late. Like the changes had already happened. So in a lot of ways they were fighting, losing battles, but they were still trying to fight them. So in this conversation, we have described the Klan as Christian nationalist. And I want you to explore that thread for us. Like how, how did the Klan relate faith to the nation and nation to the faith. I think you have a quote in your book, which really stuck in my head. The spirit of Americanism and the spirit of Protestantism are not just similar, but one in the same. And explore that for us. Like how did the Klan combine faith and nationalism into kind of 
one object, I guess, is how we're supposed to interpret that. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question because those two don't seem to want to go together at first, right? I feel like maybe they do now more in 2023 after we've been having longstanding conversations about white Christian nationalism more. But for the Klan, the idea was you couldn't have a nation without that nation being religious, that it wasn't possible. And so America would not exist without Protestantism. Like the two could not be separated out in some sort of way. What made America was white Protestants. So the nation had to, excuse me, a white Protestant nation, right? So nationalism was embedded in Protestantism and in whiteness in both of them. And so the nation simply could not exist without having faith as a key component of it, which is part of why they were freaking out about Catholics and Jewish people is that they couldn't, what do you do, right? If this Protestantism piece isn't a part of this, right? Because for them, faith meant Protestant. It didn't mean, it wasn't inclusive, right? It was remarkably exclusive. It was just this one thing, not all these others. And so they saw those as intertwined but also in a certain way intertwined, but also interchangeable, right? That nation was so caught up in faith, so caught up in race that you couldn't have one without the other, but they're just so much the same too. That they were just bound together in their minds that America was a white Protestant nation and so you couldn't have a nation without either of those components. So the nation was built on faith and that that was how it worked. And so nationalism then had to be built that way. It had to work that way. And that you couldn't ignore religion, like you just couldn't at all. And so that that was how they framed it again and again, and how they also told the story of America, that religion was like key to how the nation starts, right? And how you even begin to have the idea of an America comes from religion too, and how they tell the story of America and how we get to where we are in some sort of way. A very traditional, like, we got to start with like, pilgrims and Puritans and religious freedom and these sorts of ideas that they then shape in their own mold to make about white Protestants and particularly the Klan in some sort of way. But that narration is essential, right? Like you can't have this nation without these other sort of pieces that come together and create it and make it the way it is now. So in terms of governance, is this outlook theocratic? Do they see, <laughs> I think for me, like we've been digging into a little of Christian nationalism here on the show and it's, I find it really weird because I can't tell if it's theocratic or if it's just religion and government should be so merged, but it's still people who are making decisions are still of the material realm. They're not preachers, they're politicians. Right. Like in, in terms of, politics and policy, how did their kind of merger of Protestantism 
in the American tradition? How was that expressed into politics and policy? What's funny about them is that they were still very firmly on the like pro-separation of church and state because they didn't want other churches involved in state. So they weren't theocratic in the sense that they wanted like some sort of religious state. They still wanted some sort of separation. I think they just wanted white Protestant politicians, right? In places of power is what they wanted. They just wanted to make sure that we kept other folks out in some kind of way. I mean, that strikes me as vaguely theocratic, right? By putting people in power that way. But they still wanted to claim, like I said, that they were for the separation of church and state because that was important, right? That was a foundational piece of the founding of the American nation and this sort of thing. But again, it was an exclusionary tactic, right? To not let other people have a voice or a say or these kinds of things. But yeah, no, it's wild about who they thought should be in charge then, right? Like what politicians should be in charge and who they should be. And they would have been happiest with Klansmen being in charge, <laughs> of course, and being responsible for governance in some kind of way. But yeah, I think they would have been completely happy and they were okay with separation of church and state if it meant that white Protestants would still be in charge. But if that changed, then they probably would have changed their minds about how things should have run in some kind of way. So if I'm understanding their position correctly, they accept the idea of separation of church and state, but caveat, the use of federal power has to be exclusionary, right? We, they only want Protestant politicians. They only want Protestant right. representation. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's exactly right. To make sure that their ideas, right, and their decisions and that their policies and laws are the ones that are going through and staying the way that they're supposed to stay instead of letting other people have a voice. And what's fascinating about this is that they claimed that they were the ones that were tolerant and were letting other people have ideas and have positions and these sorts of things when of course they were not, right? They're like, we're the magnanimous ones when they were not at all, when it's just they were magnanimous as long as they got their way in some way, shape, or form. Going further, they would only accept democracy to if it served their interests. So they're still anti-democratic in that way, or? They really wanted to claim that they were democratic, right? Like that they supported democratic systems. And the only reason they did is that they wanted to exclude other people from democratic systems. So they were claiming to be democratic, but weren't. They're like fine with being democratic if these other people can't vote, which isn't very democratic at all. And they were for white women's suffrage in the hopes that they would get more voters so that they had more power at the ballot box. But yeah, I know it's, again, it's the contradictions with them. We're democratic except for, right? We're tolerant except for, we're for the separation of a church and state, except for these instances. So, yeah. When we think about their view of nationalism and how it translates into politics, did that lend itself to like political flexibility to use 
a term from our day, from our kind of modernity, were they able to reach across the aisle? Were they work with Democrats and Republicans? Like the political party didn't matter as long as they were a Protestant politician. Oh, that's a good question. They caused all kind of chaos at the Democratic convention in, I'm going to get the date wrong. I think it was 1928. Don't quote me on that. I'm really bad at dates. When Al Smith was going to be the Democratic nominee for president because he was Catholic and caused all of this chaos because of that. So I'm going to go with not great at reaching across the aisle, (laughs) but instead wanting to have their way with this sort of thing. So, but of course he was also Catholic, right? So I think that they were okay with you as long as you were on their side, but I don't see them as being particularly politically savvy about other allies who weren't part of their movement. But other historians might be better at this than I am and have a better sense of that. So then something that I find interesting that you just mentioned that just just got me thinking the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, mm-hmm. right at the height of the power of the Second Klan. And for the audience, the 19th Amendment basically extended suffrage to women. How did the Klan react to that? Were they, like, how, <laughs> what were their kind of viewpoints on politically empowered women? Was it just white women can vote, but not black women? How did that, how did they navigate the 19th Amendment? So the women's Klan was very much pro-suffrage, right? and getting the vote. The men's clan was, their feelings were more complicated, though they did see the potential at having white women as voters to have a voting, like a clan voting block, right? If you had white women who could vote. So they were like grudgingly supportive of it, right? Because they hoped that white women might vote in their favor. But yeah, no, it was funny where they were not entirely thrilled by the prospect of it, except that they hoped that it would give them more allies in the ballot box than they might not have had otherwise. But yeah, their feelings about it were very ambivalent, I would say. And that's probably the like kindest reading on that. So then their kind of position was women should be empowered, but only if it serves the clan. Exactly. Yeah, because they were very much not here for progressive women, the men's order. So they could get behind suffrage only so long as it meant that women would vote the way that the men's order did, but not as a way for women's empowerment at all. Interesting. So I want to maybe switch footing. Okay. And I asked Kathleen Ballou this, and every historian that has come on the show I've asked this, so I'm going to extend it to you. Okay. Do you ever, sitting in 2022, having lived through 2016 to now, ever pinch the bridge of your nose, throw your head down, and be like, (laughs) oh shit, here we go again? All the time, all All the the time, time. (laughs) all the time. No, after, after 2016, oh my gosh, I'm rubbing my forehead right now. No, after 2016, I received like a series of texts from other historian friends who were like, how you doing, buddy? And I'm like, we're living in my book. So how you think I'm doing, right? Like, 
how do you think I feel about this? So yeah, no, it's, it's weird, right? To work on these movements historically and then to live through this stuff real time. I used to think like 15 years of the clan, that's not so bad. And now I'm just like 15 years, 15 years. Oh my goodness. It's so long. And it's just the, if I really sat and thought about the 15 years thing, I would have had a similar reaction, but, but yeah, it's hard and it's complicated. And often I feel like I want to grab my little soapbox and just yell at people about this. And sometimes I give into that urge, but just to say there are lots of us that have been working on this stuff for a really long time who pointed a lot of the stuff out and we're seeing it happen like right before our eyes. And it's just like the dissonance of that is just a lot to deal with. And yeah, so people are like, oh, this white Christian nationalism thing. And I'm like, yes, I know I'm aware. And you can hear the hysteria in my laughter a little bit now, but yeah, it's, it's a lot to deal with for sure. But I mean, like to push back, it's not just 15 years. It's, I think the 1924 immigration law wasn't overturned or. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, this is exactly true. So when we're talking about like the lingering effects of something like the Klan, we're talking even longer amounts of time. So yeah, no, that's an important corrective that you made. I was just talking about the length of the Klan's existence, but when we're talking about the length of their influence, arguably, and I do argue this, like their influence is still around today. So we're still living with problems that they created and that sort of history and legacy. So yeah, no, it's so much longer than that. So much longer. And so, yeah, I do appreciate you pushing me on that one because it's an important point to make. I mean, I think, I think here at the show and kind of my own research, like I think the legacy of the second clan is like, it almost feels like every subsequent white supremacy movement has tried to go back to the second clan in the sense of developing the grift, making millions of dollars having broad normie appeal and because like right now we're planning shows on like David Duke running for Senate mm-hmm. and Tom Metzger running for office. And it's both these guys came out of violent organizations and then they were smart enough to understand power is not rooted in necessarily in violence, but in subverting the democratic process, so to speak. When you sit down as a historian, what do you think about the legacy? Do you, do you see explicit parallels from the second clan to MAGA now or to the second clan and kind of the extremism of the Republican party? Is there, as a historian, do you see that as an appropriate kind of parallel or is it like we need to evaluate each organization on its own? Yeah, so I definitely see some parallels and it was really, it was really I don't know what the right word would be here, but it was really interesting, haunting maybe to me in early 2016 to hear some of the rhetoric from then presidential candidate Trump that pretty much sounded like Klan rhetoric from the 20s, right? Like I wrote a couple pieces about this where it was just like, holy cow, right? They're speaking the same language in some ways. And so just to see those kinds of parallels, right? That the language hasn't changed that much. 
in this amount of time and that you can still see the same kind of scapegoats that people are using to drive fear and dissension and these sorts of things. So yeah, I think it's definitely the case that there are still these kinds of parallels that you find and that it's important to note those, right? And to see where our histories pop back up and why they pop back up and how, and to pay attention to that, right? The kind of the quote that goes around about how the past is never really done with us, right? And that this is one of those examples again and again of this, where I feel like the clan is never really done with us, no matter, no matter what. And so we find their rhetoric, we find that people still take on their mantle and their robes, even though they don't do as well in the 21st century as they have in previous periods, but they just don't ever really go away. And their rhetoric definitely doesn't go away. And ideas, it's something that we live with, but to see the kind of prominence of it in something like a presidential campaign and then later presidential speeches and that sort of thing is something to be noted and important to note, I think, and to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just when you were talking about at the local level of targeting Catholic schools, immediately in my head, it was just like, oh, in Virginia, they're doing the same thing. They're going to school boards. They're, instead of Catholic schools, it's now CRT. Or it's just, there there was definitely, reading through your book, there was definitely multiple holy shit moments. Because it was, it almost, I don't know what goes beyond parallel, but it was just like the parallel was too close. It didn't seem like an iteration or remix. It just seemed like a straight copy and paste almost. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It makes me sad. Yeah. So we've been talking for about two hours and I think we've covered a lot today, but as per tradition, I have to ask you the legendary last question, which is before we go for the day, before we head off, leave me the audience whomever, something to think about, something to chew on. So this has been, some people have used this space as to suggest research ideas. Some people have suggested life ideas. Some people have told spooky stories. It is your space to occupy with whatever you think the audience and I should leave the show with. Oh, I think that folks should be paying some careful attention to the stuff that's going around about schools and schooling right now and what is allowed in schools and what is not allowed in schools. Thinking through our conversation today about students trying to be forced into public schools, I couldn't help but think I'm in Florida about the efforts that Florida has to remove books from classrooms or make it felonies, you know, felony for teachers to have books in classrooms that students could get a hold of and this attempt to remove all this works from AP African-American studies curriculum and all of these other sorts of things, but just to pay attention to where schools are sites where this white Christian nationalism attacks are happening and to see what your interventions might could be. It's something I'm thinking about a lot lately and we just encourage listeners to think about that too and what they might do and to pay attention to what's happening their local school boards and their local schools. It's just, it's a current battlefield and it's a place that we should probably be paying some careful attention to because of the long-standing effects that it might have on our students and our culture. 
wiser. So that was Kelly J. Baker, the author of Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America. We will have a link for the book when we publish the show. Make sure to go get it. Your library on extremism isn't complete until you have this book in there. Thank you so much for being a guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate our conversation. It was great. Of course.